All right, if you guys will turn with me to Book of Ephesians this morning. Book of Ephesians, we're going to finish up chapter 2 as we progress through the entire epistle. So we're going to finish up chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 will be our text. And so if you can, as you find that with me, uh, stand. And we're going to read this together in honor of the one who gave us this word. So as you find Ephesians chapter 2 and are able, stand with me. And we're going to read verses 19 through 22. It reads, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you just so humbled and grateful that you have brought us to this place that we can gather as a body, that we can worship in song with the reading of your word to help us focus on you and your glory. I pray that Hearing the saints sing to one another was an encouragement for every person here as we glorify you and thank you for your salvation. I pray that this message would penetrate our hearts and minds this morning, that your spirit would impact us with the truths of this particular text. And I pray, Lord, that you would remove any hindrances from me, and that you would remove any nerves, and that you would simply make me a mouthpiece of your truth. We glorify you, and we pray that all this is done in your name. I pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Um, all right, Ephesians chapter 2, there are notes, um, uh, notes back there um, for taking sermon notes. If you'd like some, you're certainly welcome to grab some of those. Um, but Ephesians chapter 2, the title of the message today is God's Blueprints. God's Blueprints. This particular text um, this week as I was studying through it has been one of just great encouragement, absolute great encouragement, but it's also been challenged as well. Um, encouraging and challenging, I think, is probably the best combination for me uh, in Scripture. Um, when it encourages you, encourages you to look to Christ and rest in Him, when it challenges you to live according to His commandments and, and strive for holiness, and that's exactly what this text has done this week. This particular portion of Ephesians 2, Paul is essentially culminating his thoughts on the union of Jew and Gentile with three different analogies that will build one upon another. So he's going to take three different ideas, building upon one another to really drive home what he's been saying for the last eight verses. He started roughly verse 11 of chapter 2, talking about the, the difference between Jew and Gentile, and that the, the, the great dividing wall, the partition between Jew and Gentile, has been torn down in Christ. And he talks about the circumcision and the uncircumcision and those kinds of things. And those things he's, he's now bringing to a, an end, he's bringing to a final thought, his final point. And so today we're going to have the privilege of getting a glimpse into the blueprint of God for his church, what it means to be the house people of God, why a building is the perfect analogy for the church, and how being a sanctuary of God as the body of Christ is the fulfillment of both the tabernacle and temple of the Old Testament. So we get to see a lot of things packed into four verses. And I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited. I even told Amanda last night how excited I was um, to, to share this with everyone today because it's, it's absolutely a beautiful picture of God's work in building his church. 
and really this, this mentality that I want to focus on is so appropriate for us today. Obviously, was appropriate for the Ephesians, the, whom Paul wrote it to, but in our, in our era, in our culture of radical individualism, we have lost the mindset of the unity of the body of Christ. Um, so many times churches come together as a bunch of individuals with individual relationships with Christ, which is true. We do have individual relationships with Christ, but the unity of, of the church around Christ and being a, a living organism, a building upon which God is, is building his kingdom is sometimes missed. And so this is a fantastic passage for us to learn from today. So let's dig in. Uh, number one, God's household. So we're going to look at verse 19 first. So number one is God's household. So in verse 19, Paul begins this particular passage with, So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So verse 19 begins, So then. So I want you to keep in the back of your minds that, again, Paul is referencing what he just came off of. It's almost as if he's saying, because of that, this. And so then... Because the Jews and Gentiles are no longer separated because of all that Christ has done in unifying those different peoples to himself, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So let's take a look at these words here because it, it, it's striking what Paul is trying to say. In context of this particular passage, he is telling us that we are no longer citizens of this world, but we are citizens of his kingdom. That we are holy ones, that we are set apart. We are citizens with the saints. And so we have been removed from this world. Now, what I want to do is, is narrow down here that he is specifically talking about the Gentiles. So in context of what he's saying here, we have to understand that he is just spent multiple verses explaining that the Gentiles are no longer outside looking in, right? We talked about the nation of Israel and how the Gentiles were the uncircumcised and they were looking in and when Christ tore down that wall and brought them in as saints. Now in other passages, and I want to clarify this because sometimes it's confusing, in other passages, Paul uses being aliens and sojourners in a different fashion. In other places, you'll see him tell us that we are still aliens and sojourners and exiles on this world. And so what I want you to think about it is in this way. In this context, Paul is saying the Gentiles are brought in because they're no longer sojourners and exiles outside of Israel. But once here, they are sojourners. We are sojourners and exiles of the world. So he brings us out of the world and it makes us sojourners of the world, exiles of the world itself, because we are now citizens of the king. You guys follow the logic that Paul is making there. And so I want to make sure that we're clear on that, because he does use this analogy in a different way in other texts. But in this particular one, he is talking specifically to Gentiles, who says they are no longer strangers and sojourners. They are no longer aliens. The, the one there for strangers can be translated as aliens. So Gentiles, us in this room, those who are not of the Jewish heritage, are no longer outside the kingdom of God. We have brought, been brought in as citizens. Philippians, excuse me, Philippians 3, verse 20, echoes this thought. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of heaven. 
The world is no longer our focus. We have been brought and reconciled to God. Now, as he continues in verse 19, he says, and are of God's household. That's a very impactful word. The idea here is one of adoption. We are no longer outside the family of God. So Paul begins his analogies with citizenship. And he says, we're no longer exiles. We're no longer aliens. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. But we're more than that. We are his household. There's a difference, is there not, between citizens of a kingdom and members of the king's household? There's a vast difference there. And so he begins by saying we are part of the kingdom of the king, but we're not just citizens. We are members of his household. We are adopted into the family of God by the work of Christ. And that idea of adoption carries such weight. There is a legal transaction that happens. Just as we have legal adoption today in our countries, where there's a lot of paperwork. I've, I've, we've been there. My family and I were blessed to be able to do that. There's so much paperwork. It's months of time. You have to go before a judge. You have to pay lawyers incredible amounts of money to draw up a small piece of paper. I, I don't really understand it. But that's what you have to do, right? It's a legal transaction. And God uses this terminology for a very specific reason. Because the legal transaction to bring us to Christ was the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, his son who paid the penalty for our sins, who legally took the wrath that was set aside for us and took it upon himself for the cross. That was a legal transaction. And I want to point out the difference of a couple of words here because this, this was so striking to me in the context of what we're talking about with salvation and, and Christ saving us and bringing in, us, us into the family of God. In the original language, the verse for strangers and the verse for household. So you see that in verse 19, strangers and household. And you may have a slightly different version, but strangers and household. Believe it or not, and this is fascinating to me, in the original language, the root word for both of those words is exactly the same. The only thing that makes the difference between a complete alien and a member of a household is a prefix change. Think about that for just a second in the, in the context of salvation. Does Christ not remove our sin in the same way that the prefix was removed from that word and affixed with the righteousness of Christ in the same way that the correct prefix was attached to that word to change the entire meaning of the word? We are brought from the alien, from the stranger, into the household of God in a similar fashion as that same word was completely changed in meaning by that simple change. And that was just mind-blowing to me that the word itself even is an indicator of the salvation that Christ gives us. And the literal translation of that word for household is house people or house ones. House people or house ones. Think about that. We are the house ones of God. That is a beautiful, I don't care about how bad it sounds in English, that is a beautiful picture. We are the house ones of God. We are in his home. We are part of the family of the king. And this tells us that before he reconciles us to himself, we are outside of the family, but by adoption, by his work, we are brought in. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, it's Galatians 6.10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This analogy is used 
throughout scripture, being a member of the family, the household of God. And there are weights. That is, a, that is a weighty thing. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want to share something with you from, from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this is a, he's talking about the assurance that we have in the faith because of what Christ has done. So I'm going to read, read this to you because I want us to both rest in the fact that we are members of the family of God, that we are part of his household, but I also want us to understand the responsibility that goes along with that. So Lloyd-Jones says this, We are put into a position in which, as Isaac Watts says so rightly, we have a better status than that of Adam. We have something that Adam lacked, for we are in Christ. Adam was not in Christ. Adam was made in God's image, but he was, as it were, outside the life of God. But we are in Christ. God the Son came down to earth. He took human nature into himself, and we are in him. Adam was never in that position. We are incorporated into Christ. We are members of the household of God, not so Adam. That was such a better way of wording it than I could. (laughs) So I wanted to share that with you because truly we have a better relationship with the Father than the first human being that was created because Christ dwells in us. And so from this first verse, I want us to draw two points of application. I first want us to understand that we are no longer separated from God. You can rest in the assurance that you are a family member of God because of his adopted work. It's adoptive work. We are members. We are house people. We are the house ones of God. Put your rest and faith in the work of Christ. Every single member of the church of this church that is a believer is a house person of God, is a house one of God. Every single believer sitting in this room, every single believer at Summit, our sending church, we are family together. We are house people of God. Every true believer in the entire history of the world, both past, present, and future, is a house one of God. We are a family of God because of his work on the cross. Now, I say it in that way to make us understand, to make us realize the responsibility that we have to one another as family members is great. The responsibility that we have, according to Scripture, by being in the household of God is to support one another, to challenge one another, to hold one another accountable. And it calls us to do good. Did Galatians 6, 10 not say specifically? While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of faith. Especially to those. That takes priority over other relationships, folks. Your local church body, we are to be a unit, a family. We are children of God. And there, yeah, there, there will be times that we have to sacrifice. We're a family. There will be times of sin against one another, but we're still family. There will be times of hurt feelings, I promise, but we're still family. There will be times of differing opinions and views, but we're still family. So let us be the family that God has called us out and separated us to be, one of grace, one of love, There's a reason that God uses the analogy of the family and then establishes the family on earth as his unit of of procreation and and populating the earth. 
because we all can relate to the, the, the to the idea of a family, can we not? All of us came from one. All of us are probably in one, right? We, there, there's a family there, regardless of how dysfunctional, maybe not knowing your parents, but there's there's a family idea ingrained in human culture, and so we can relate with that. And so that means we have to make sure that we are living as the house ones of God together. Number two, verses 21, or excuse me, 20 and 21, is God's building. So we've looked at God's household. So now Paul is going to be shifting the analogy a little bit and building upon it. So he's talked about the household, not the physical house, but the household, the family that resides within the home. And now he's going to be talking about a building. Now, this is not a church building. I want to make sure that you understand he is not referencing a physical building. He's not talking about the wall, four walls that are around us. He is using a building as a metaphor for the living church, for the living organism that is the church. And so he's going to describe that because the nature of that body is perfect, perfect for building, for using the building as an analogy. So let's read verses 20 and 21 again together. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. So there's a couple things to note first off. If we start back in the beginning of verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, I thought Christ was the foundation. Because here it only calls him Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So let's talk about this for just a moment. And I want to start by making sure we understand the apostles and prophets and who he's talking about. Often our first, and this was, this was for a long time my idea as well, that we were thinking of the apostles being the New Testament, the prophets referencing the Old Testament. But if you look throughout all of Paul's writings, anytime he references the Old Testament prophets, he puts prophets first and apostles second. And you can tell in context that's what he's talking about. Every time he references the gift of being a modern day in his time, a, a prophet of his day, in other words, a teacher, someone who expounds on the word, he puts apostle prophet. I'm not, I'm not talking about our modern day prophets from Africa. You might get those emails. Anybody else get bugged like that? Yes? Okay. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. In Paul's context, what he's talking about is those whom God chose to specifically teach the truths of his word, to teach his correct doctrine. So Paul is referencing not the Old Testament prophets here, and there's some debate that goes back and forth, but I'm convinced on my study throughout the New Testament and comparing the way he uses them, that Paul is referencing specifically the New Testament apostle and prophet. And so he is saying that the church, the, the, the building of the church, the, the, the analogy of the building is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So let's think about that for just a minute. How many remember or think of other places where Christ is referenced as the foundation of the church? Everybody with me on that? Yes? Christ references the... So what is Paul trying to say? <laughs> So to understand what Paul is trying to say, we have to understand in context of his day what cornerstone means. When I say cornerstone, and give me a show of hands, how many people think of the small plaque that's on the side of a building that gives something memorial, right? A memorial built on something like that. Anybody think of it that way? It's just glued to the side of a building, okay? 
in the first century, that is not at all, in biblical time, that is not at all what a cornerstone is. In fact, what Paul is referencing here is two different verses. Write these down. You can turn there if you like. But he's referencing two different places of the Old Testament. And there's a specific wording in one of them that gives us more idea of what Paul is referencing. So the first one is Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh. So this is again Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's Psalm 118.22. Now there's a very specific wording there, chief cornerstone. So when you think of a building, we think of having four squares. Most buildings of that era had four distinct squares, right? More modern had they pushed stuff out and moved stuff around. But in those days, it was simply four squares. The chief cornerstone is the most vital and important building block of the entire building. It was the first one put down. They spent immense amounts of time making sure it's exactly how they wanted. And then every other piece of material in the entire home from top to bottom was measured with that stone. The chief cornerstone is upon which everything else is measured. It is the absolute perfect representation of what the master builder wanted the building to look like. And so if a cornerstone, a chief cornerstone is removed, the entire building crumbles. You cannot have a building built in that way without the chief cornerstone being firmly planted and everything else measured upon it. So when we think of the foundation of the church being built on the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, that is the foundation upon which the church is built. So imagine this, Christ being the cornerstone, the other apostles and prophets laying the foundation for that home perfectly aligned with Christ, perfectly within what he taught, what he lived, who he is, exactly as the master builder wanted it. And then the rest of the church is then on that solid foundation of God's teaching and preaching and is built upon it. And so that Christ is the plumb. He is the absolute measurement. He is upon which everything else is founded. And that is why the scriptures are often called the canon. How many think of canon when you think of a pirate ship? And that's not what this, canon, this word canon means. The word canon here means rule or guide. It's upon which everything else is measured. And so if the foundation is the apostles and prophets, specifically the New Testament here, but we can also apply that to the Old Testament, we know that that foundation has to be first aligned with Christ. He is the chief cornerstone, and everything else gets built upon that. And so it's the doctrine itself. The foundation is the doctrine upon which we build our churches. We build our Christian lives. It's what God used those men, those apostles and prophets in line with Christ to then teach us to build our church and our Christian lives. See how perfect the analogy of a building is, especially when you understand what he's talking about. John Calvin had this to say. Foundation in this passage unquestionably means doctrine. For no mention is made of patriarchs or pious kings, 
but only of those who held the office of teachers and of whom God had appointed to superintend the edification of his church. And this idea of a cornerstone is found throughout the New Testament. Peter mentions it. We saw the references in the Old Testament. Paul mentions it. So we have to understand that we as a body of believers are built upon the firm foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and prophets, which perfectly align with Christ, and that is our standard. So as we move on to verse 21, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. A holy sanctuary in the Lord. This particular verse um, I spent a lot of time on because it was really, really impactful to my own life to understand the, 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 just the weight, the depth of what he's saying here. So the whole building is being joined together on this foundation. So I want you to think of in your mind is the cornerstone. Okay, we've talked about the chief cornerstone. We've talked about the rest of the foundation being aligned with that chief cornerstone, which is Christ. And then think about Jews and Gentiles as two separate walls that are now part of that same building, perfectly in line with Christ. Christ has brought all of them together. So do you see how the building is starting to form? And so each one of us can be thought of as bricks. This analogy is going to carry throughout the rest of the morning. And so we can think of ourselves as bricks being built into a sanctuary. Now, when you think of a sanctuary, we might think of Notre Dame or, or some Gothic sanctuary of a Roman Catholic nature, but that is not the idea of what Paul is saying here. In fact, the word used here is in reference to the Holy of Holies. Does that ring a bell to anyone? The Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle or the temple, the innermost place where God himself dwelt. Did you catch that? Where God himself dwelt. Paul is comparing the believers that he is writing to, the, the church, that are now Jew and Gentile combined, to the actual holy of holies in which God dwelt. That is mind-blowing. And we're going to go into more detail of it, but I want you to really meditate on that for just a minute. Because truly... That is unbelievable. Do you know it took a few verses to write about the six days that God created the world in? He took six chapters to describe how to write, build the tabernacle. It's been said he took six days to create the world, six days of the details of the holy dwelling place upon which he would live among his people. And I would take it a step further and argue that the entire scriptures the Bible from cover to cover, is him building the church. The idea of him building the church, the redemptive plan of him building where he would reside for the rest of our time as this earth exists. The, the gravity of that thought should make our heads spin. So let's think about this from a few different perspectives as he uses some analogies and some words that go along with building a building. So he says in first, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary of the Lord. So how does a building grow? How does a building grow? 
I think there's two different ways of thinking about this, and I think he means both. It is likely that both in number and in maturity. Both in number and maturity. So God's church is not done growing. As, as detrimental as our, as our time on, in America looks, as, as formidable as our task is, as the culture continues to grow in strength and churches continue to, strength, uh, to shrink in size, it looks insurmountable. It does. If you look at the world, it looks insurmountable. But God's church will continue to grow as time progresses. God's church, I'm not saying it will, the new Christendom and those kinds of things, I'm not saying those kinds of things, but God knows exactly how many people he has elected unto salvation. And every single one that he has elected unto salvation will be a part of this building. There will not be one brick, one piece of wood, one Floor plank, one ceiling plank, however you, however far you want to play this analogy out, okay? Not one piece of furniture, not where it should be in the house of God, his church. He will redeem every person whom he intends to. But let's think about this from a growth perspective as well. Let's think about this as Colossians 2, 18 and 19 tells us. Colossians 2, verses 18 and 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Corinthians talks about growth. Philippians talks about growth. The entire New Testament, later on in Ephesians, we're going to read more about growth. Nearly every epistle talks about the growth of the body of Christ. And so the growth that Paul is referencing here is also in maturity, growing as a body in the maturity and maturing and understanding of who Christ is, what he has done, and we push each other. And as Hebrews 10 talks about, we stimulate one another to good works. And we grow as a united body and building. Think of it this way. In those days, they didn't have bricks as we would think of them. As you know, you go down to the Acme brick in Springfield and you buy a pile of bricks. Okay, They would have to cut them and hew them and make sure that the stones that they already had would fit it together. And if they wouldn't, have you ever rubbed two stones or two bricks together to try to smooth them out to get them to fit better together? Anybody ever done that before? Like you rub them and kind of heat them up and you'll start seeing it. That's what we as, as a body of believers do. We rub up against each other, we challenge each other, we hold each other accountable, we study God's word, and we, and we get where we fit better together. Christ being the one that pulls us together, but we rub on each other and we form each other and we smooth each other out. And those, those edges is Christ using the spirit in his body to smooth us out and make us fit better together so that we might bring him glory. But the edifice of the church, the outside that the world sees, is going to look better and better and more unified and more loving and more gracious, and he's going to continue to grow. Think of the miracle it is to bring these different bricks, these different types of stone into a unified, God-glorifying building that he can go, this is my people, this is where I live. Think about that. Think about the weight that we have as a body of believers in being the sanctuary, the holy of holies. We are the fulfillment 
of the tabernacle and temple. We are. We are the fulfillment of what those shadows were pointing toward. We ourselves are the sanctuary of God, both in our own lives. So we are indwelt by the Spirit, are we not? But Paul is not talking about individually here. The entire context of all of chapter 2 is talking about the church, the unit of the body of believers. He is talking at a corporate setting. We have to get out of our minds that Christian life is only individual. It is not. The Christian life is corporate. You cannot be a lone wolf believer. It is not a lone ranger thing out there, guys. You have to be part of a body, a healthy body of believers, to follow what the vast majority of the New Testament teaches, which is to love one another, hold each other accountable, give each other grace, point each other to Christ. I've had some low times in my life, and I can look back on, on the low times and know that it was lower because I wasn't part of a church. Anybody concur with that? When you look back and go, these are the struggles that I've had, and I can look back and go, I was not part of a healthy body of believers that God uses through his spirit to sanctify and lift me back up because sometimes, guys, as hard as we might like to, as hard as we try, our eyes drift from Christ. And we don't rest in him as we should. And we have people that love us and care about us who know what God has done in our lives and they bring us back up and they gently lift our eyes back to the one who saved us. And we can know that we are children of the king once again. That's what the body of believers is for. That's what it's for. So I want you guys to think about the chief cornerstone again. There's a couple of points of application on this one that I want us to take home. Christ is the chief cornerstone. As I explained what that is, it's not a hard jump. It's not Our brains should immediately go to what the chief cornerstone means, that everything is aligned to it. Our church must be, and to the best of the elders' ability, will be aligned with Christ. And we will measure everything that we do according to the foundation that he has given us with apostles and prophets are aligned with that chief cornerstone and everything is plumb and everything is in line with him and nothing, no bricks are pointing out, no pragmatic ideas are shooting a window someplace in the middle of the field somewhere, right? You guys see how I'm taking the analogy too far? I always do that. And so when we think about the chief cornerstone, everything we do as a body of believers, which also includes us doing it in our personal lives, that principle can be applied there, must be in line with the canon of Scripture. We must align everything that we do with the Word of God. And if we don't see it in the Word of God or it contradicts the Word of God, we will abandon it post-haste. Another thing I want you guys to walk away with from this, though, is that it's very clear in the wording that Paul uses that this building is not finished yet. We are still growing. I'm not talking about numbers. I'm not talking about how many people we can get in the seats. I'm not talking about light shows or budgets or anything like that. What I'm talking about is that every single person in here, the application is, look at the person around you and know that they're still growing. That brick is not fully settled into place yet. And until glorification, we won't be settled fully into place. 
but use that analogy and look at the people around you and think of how can I, with the least abrasive and most grace impactful way, help them smoothly fit better into the slot that they've been put into that wall? How can I help that piece of furniture sit more level? It's a little wobbly. How can I make sure that that window is plumbed up correctly according, and you better be ready to have someone point at your life in your little slot? Not in a negative way. I'm not asking some people some, to, to police things, okay? I'm not asking for a, a, a reporting state to the elder. That's, I'm not advocating for any of those things. But a healthy body points one another to Christ and goes, look, see that cornerstone over there? See that corner of the building? Our wall is a little, it's getting a little crooked. And this is where I see that we could straighten it up a little bit. And so I want us to look around to the people around you to, one, give them grace and know that they're still growing. And if you see them growing and they're struggling, but they're repentant and they're, they're trying and they're looking at them and they're asking for help, encourage them. Don't beat them down. How many churches, how many in here have been in churches like that? Kick them while they're down is the old mentality, right? It's, they're already upset about, about their sin. Let's make them sure they're up their face them. That is not okay, and that is not how the Christian life is, 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 is walked. But we show that grace to one another and go that they're still growing, they're still settling into the wall, and then helping them do that, but also remember that you have to look at yourself and know that the church will lift you up as well. And this is really the idea whenever you think of the tabernacle, God gave them the very instructions of how to build it bigger and, and better. When it, they had all these different pieces, and he gave them instructions of how to form this all together. The building uh, analogy is seen throughout Scripture, and it's beautiful that Paul is applying, to, applying it to the church here. So the last point, verse 22. The last point this morning is God's dwelling. God's dwelling. So we went from God's household God's house people, this being in his family, to understanding the building analogy and understanding that we are the, the, the very sanctuary, the holy of holies of, of, of the Lord God. And now we're going to see where he comes and dwells in that holy of holies, in that sanctuary. So as we've learned throughout all of chapter 2, the Jews and Gentiles are being built together. God is the wise head master builder. And he uses the apostles and prophets. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 3.9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. But Paul also understood his responsibility because Christ was quite clear that he would be the one taking this mes message. And so in 1 Corinthians 3.10 and 11, so as he continues in that same passage, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation Another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So verse 22, in whom, and back in Ephesians 3, sorry, I jumped around there a little bit, but in verse 22 of Ephesians 3, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. So now he's taking it, the, 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 playing the analogy all the way out. So it's a holy, at the end of verse 21, a holy sanctuary in, in the Lord in whom you also are being built together. So we are being built together in the Lord. As he is the head master builder using 
the apostles and prophets to continue the building process as the church grew. But I want us to think through here the complete fulfillment of what Christ has done in, in his sacrifice, becoming the ultimate priest, and in building his church so that we can see all that he fulfilled. So we are a dwelling place corporately for God through his spirit dwelling in us. I'm going to walk through a few passages, write these down, if you would. Write down Leviticus chapter 16, the whole thing. I'm not going to read it to you. I'll save you that. Leviticus chapter 16. And the description, a small portion of the description of how Aaron and the high priest after him could not enter the Holy of Holies without following explicit holiness guidelines or they would immediately perish. An entire chapter dedicated to wash this way, wear these clothes, walk in this fashion, don't do this, do this. And if they stepped out of line one speck, one iota, they would perish. Also look at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Turn there with me if you will, because I want you to get the gravity of this. First Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. For the sanctuary of God is holy, and here it is, and that is what you are. That is what you are. Think about that for just a minute. The holy God who created the world, who was sinned against by the first pinnacle of his creation, Adam, then chose to come back and choose a particular people for himself to dwell among, not in, but among. There's a difference between in and with. He dwelt with the Israelites, he dwells in us. And so he comes and he says, this is how holy, this is how separate, this is what you have to do in these exact replicated details day in and day out in order to come and be in front of me, in order to worship me, in order for me to dwell here. It has to meet these specifications. It has to be this kind of holy. You have to wash this kind of way. You don't touch these unclean things. And then he comes to the church. You see the rest of Israelite history. Christ comes and he gives his life and he's buried and raised given the power and authority, sends his spirit back on the day of Pentecost, and so sanctifies the people that he has chosen to save, so makes them so holy by his own work that he can dwell among them. The very creatures that spat in his face at the beginning of time has been made so holy that he can dwell among them when he could not even go but one day a year and allow them to come into his holy sanctuary. That's all the priests were allowed. The high priest was allowed one day a year if they followed these specific rules to come in to the holy of holies, the throne room of God. And yet we, by the work of Christ, the better priest, the better high priest, and in an order higher than the Levites, has completed the process once and for all so that we have been given his holiness, clothed with his righteousness in such a way that we are literally viewed by a holy God as so holy he can dwell within us. 
That is amazing. That God would do that for his people, for his own glory. That he would dwell among them because he does desire to dwell among his people. Because Christ dwells in us through the Spirit. And, and Paul's going to explain even in more detail in just a few minutes, or just a few, not minutes, but there'll be a little while before we get there. But Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. So we're almost to 3. We're starting it next week. But in verses 14 to 19, he continues on with this same thought process. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This idea that we are holy sanctuary where God dwells is designed to teach us the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that would redeem us to himself so perfectly, clothe us in his perfect righteousness to the fullest extent that we would be filled to the fullness of God. This looking at our body, our our, our corporate body as a sanctuary not fill you to the fullness of the love of God? Does that not impact you? Because it should. Because that is an amazing concept that the love of Christ caused him to sacrifice himself that he might redeem the sheep that the Father gave him so perfectly that the sanctuary becomes so holy that God can dwell there. Because in Exodus 30 and 1 Kings 8, I won't make you turn there, but Exodus 30, or 40, excuse me, and 1 Kings 8, you can go and look. Nearly every reference, and these are just a couple examples, but nearly every reference of the Old Testament where humans were mentioned with the Holy of Holies or the Lord filling his temple, it specifically describes, and the high priests were unable to go near it. Or the Israelites were forced to get back. Only through the work of Christ are we brought to a holy God. Only through the work of Christ. It's been said of this particular passage, just as God's fullness dwells in Christ, so too Christ dwells in believers by faith. Such indwelling creates reconciliation between Jew and Gentile and establishes a new space that can be described as a building, a holy temple, which God spirit and habits the glory of god his shekinah glory dwells through his spirit in this body there's a couple of of last points here of application that i want to make this idea to us i went through so much detail in in the idea of the, the sanctuary and the holy of holies because when paul wrote this letter to ephesus that was the headquarters for the Temple of Artemis. They naturally, in their culture, knew what it meant for God to dwell among people. Naturally. The Gentiles did. We, as Gentiles, have been completely removed from that context. It doesn't register with us immediately that gods would dwell within a temple. And so I wanted to make sure that we grasp, by using 
scripture's example of the tabernacle and the temple of what it meant for Yahweh to dwell among his people. And so when we think about this and how it impacts our daily lives, this should first drive us to a new level and awe of gratitude toward God for what he has done and to really feel the weightiness of what that means. That we were taken from complete death in sin by the free grace of Christ and his work to being completely holy with his holiness upon us, so much so that a holy God could dwell among us. That is beyond words. But only should we think of that. This should drive us, and hear me, this should drive us to strive for the holiness of God because we are his sanctuary. Yes, he dwells among us because we've been holy, we are made holy by Christ, but we must strive for the holiness that he tells us to strive for throughout his word, like a toddler reaching for their cup on the counter. You guys ever seen a toddler? So you can, they can see it and they can kind of touch it a little bit, and, but they never can quite get their hands on it. And that's how I compare us striving for the holiness of Christ, striving to follow his commands. We should be trying with all of our might, standing on our tiptoes and reaching and reaching. And we may touch it once in a while and have a good day or a good hour, in my case, a good minute, right? And we may grasp it a little bit and, and bump it a little bit, but it's always striving. We never stop striving. We are always stirred to good works, trying to be what Christ has said we are. It doesn't mean when you fail that you've lost holiness, but you have hurt the testimony of the one that dwells within us. The world looks to the church to be separate, to be holy, to be who God says we are, which is his dwelling place amongst them. In us, his dwelling place amongst them. And if we are not striving for the holiness of God and living our lives in such a fashion that we are unified in him, that we are pointing each other to him, we are resting in what Christ has done, that we were repenting our, our every day for the sins that we still commit. We're not striving for that holiness in the way a toddler reaches for its cup. We are not being the example to the world of what God's dwelling place among them looks like. That's a heavy responsibility. But thirdly, and lastly, think about the comfort that you have knowing that your God dwells amongst us that your holy God dwells amongst you and amongst us and in us. And he's the one that purified us. It doesn't depend, your holiness doesn't depend on whether how long you stand on your tippy toes at the counter reaching for the cup. Your holiness doesn't depend on that. We can rest in what Christ has already done. It doesn't excuse us from ingratitude, seeking to glorify the God who saves us. But we rest in the fact that even when we mess up because we're going to, even when we sin because we're going to, we are still holy because of what Christ has done, not because of what we are doing. And that should cause us to rest in him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know it? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Enjoy the fact that we are part of a body where God dwells. Enjoy the fact that you're a believer who's been forgiven for those things that you could never undo. Dear Saint, I want to impress upon you 
In conclusion, I want to impress upon you and exhort you and call you to realize and understand the beauty of our citizenship in Christ. I want you to comprehend the importance of the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ being the chief cornerstone so that all rules for faith and practice come from him. I want you to embrace the ongoing building up together and growth that we have as the holy sanctuary of God. That we are ever striving to grow in unity and holiness and glory to him. And I want you to rest. Hear me. I want you to rest in the comfort, the unchanging, unfailing comfort of knowing that God dwells among us as a body of believers in close personal relationship with him. We are no longer on the outside of the Holy of Holies. But because of Christ, we have become the Holy of Holies. We have become the very sanctuary of God on earth in which he has chosen to dwell. And what a comfort that is. I want to leave you with this quote. This perfectly sums up. I read it and I just, it perfectly sums up all of chapter two. F.F. Bruce an older theologian, had this to say, and then I'll pray. What a fellowship rivets our gaze in the communion of saints. Where shall we found its like? Gathered from east and west, from, from patriarchs of the prior and laggards of the last times, from the courts of kings and the cabins of beggars, from babies in arms and centenarians, right honorables and ragamuffins, from the ranks of the learned and the ignorant, the Pharisee and the publican, the sharp-witted and the feeble-minded, the respectable and the crimin classes. What a divine power must be put forth to mold all these incongruent elements into one consentient whole, stamped with one regenerate likeness forevermore, the radiant image of the Alpha and Omega God's yoke fellow and theirs, co-equally David's son and David's Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you and thank you for the opportunity to understand through these analogies that you gave the Apostle Paul to give to us that we are a building, that we are a sanctuary, that we are a family, we have a citizenship in your kingdom and that we are your house ones. Help us to take all the, the application that that means, the weight that it has, but also let us rest in the comfort of the one, the Alpha, the Omega, who has brought us in to this family, who is the chief cornerstone upon which I pray by your grace we would measure all things that this church does. And that we measure all things in our lives according to him and the foundation that you gave us in your apostles. We glorify you and thank you for this time. In your holy name I pray. Amen.